0: Welcome back to the show. David Scales here with a 5-minute recap of JBay. These 5-minute contest recaps are brought to you by fanatic.com, the fin subscription service that allows you to rent fins from Futures, FCS, Rainbow Finco, Channel Islands, Finness, Turbo Tunnel, all the well-known fin companies as well as as well as the little-known companies. You can rent any fin they make through fanatic.com for only 10 bucks a month. They mail them to your house. You keep them as long as you want and then mail them back. The envelopes and the postage are all provided, stamped, addressed, and all included for your $10 monthly fee. Also, if you find a set of fins you love, you can keep them and pay a better than retail price. If you have any size quiver, this thing is a no-brainer. If you only have one board, switching out your fins will open up the opportunities with that one board, so everybody should be using fanatic.com. Use our promo code PODCAST, and you'll get your first month free, and then directly support this show. Fanatic.com, promo code PODCAST. Thanks. And now, let's commence with a five-minute recap of the men's event at J-Bay. Start your watches now. The 2018 Corona Open J-Bay, oh my. Occasionally, this happens for a WSL event where the grandest spectacle takes place in the periphery, not the actual surfing itself. Sometimes it's in a post-heat interview, a la Bobby Martinez in New York. Sometimes it's the cancellation of an event, like the Margaret River event this year. Or sometimes it's something completely unexpected, like Mick Fanning's Shark Encounter at this exact event two years ago. Many of those events are spawned by nature. Some of them are great for business, like Mick's Shark Encounter, which undoubtedly has been viewed many more times than any competitively surfed wave in history, thus elevating Mick's personal brand and, by association, the bravado of our sport at large. This year at J Bay, while there were actually two stoppages of the event due to a shark passing by, and there was fantastic surfing throughout the entire event, What will be most remembered was the sputtering and decried rollout of the Facebook Live platform as the sole home to view WSL events. The general viewing public and the surf media overwhelmingly revolted by not viewing the event, by writing incendiary articles, and by spewing their distaste all over social media with the highest concentration of comments in the WSL's own posts. This transition, this deal with Facebook, was announced back in January and was expected to net the WSL $30 million over the next two years in return for exclusive viewing rights to their events. It was expected to transition immediately At the first event of this season, it didn't. Technical aspects of Facebook Live's platform were still being sorted out, and the WSL promised to not transition until the platform provided a better viewing experience than what they were currently providing. All of the same features plus additional features. Well. In the interim, this past six months, Zuckerberg testified in front of the Senate and addressed Facebook's data mining and their potential collusion, knowing or unknowingly, with Russia and their social influence over the U.S. presidential elections in 2016. Scintillating and scandalous stuff, and way beyond the scope of anything that the WSL could have imagined when they brokered the deal. I mention all of this because the public's backlash to the WSL's business decision to work with Facebook isn't just about curmudgeonly viewers resisting change, although I'm sure that is some of it. It's much more about a moral revolt. Facebook has long lost its cool status and people have been deleting their accounts for years. And others, much like myself, haven't deleted the account, but they really don't use it. And so going into 2018, WSL aside, we had zero value attached to Facebook. But now, in light of Facebook's legal adjacent business practices, Facebook actually presents negative value in my life and the life of my peers. It's now an ethical burden for me to assess and it presents a moral conundrum. So aside from Facebook being uncool, it's now decidedly politicized and in turn divisive. Unfortunately for the WSL, in the time that this is all transpired, Facebook has actually gotten their tech up and running, and the 2018 Corona J-Bay Open would be the first event to showcase it. And so, on Monday, July 2nd, as Frederico Morais, Michael February, and Jordy Smith entered the Chile lineup, the WSL and Facebook launched their partnership. But wait, as it turns out, the tech wasn't exactly up and running. The WSL was marred with interrupted streaming, didn't allow us an option to see any previously surfed waves, and it actually didn't even allow access to see previous scores from previous heats. This was not what we were promised, and very likely not what the WSL was promised from Facebook. The stream itself and the functionality, the viewer's inability to access information and interact with the event was lower Than what the WSL was providing without Facebook's assistance. And mind you, this Facebook transition was all orchestrated with the goal of accessing new viewers. Rather than trying to compel a sport minded non-surfing public to type worldsurfleague.com into their URL and then mark their calendar for an upcoming event and then monitor a swell forecast to anticipate whether the event would actually run when it was scheduled or not all of this a very tall task instead what they would simply plan to do is stream events live on facebook to their 2.19 billion active monthly users and then hope that through viral sharing commenting and posting our surfing snowball picked up and retained new and engaged fans. That entire premise is predicated on the fact that the core fans, you and I, will, in fact, watch the event and engage with it, not mute the comments section. Well, J-Bay was perhaps the worst possible location to launch this experiment. Whatever core audience hadn't either A, taken a moral stance against watching the event, or B, been technically blocked from watching by the staggered streaming, we were, in fact, C, asleep, 8 a.m. at J-Bay is 11 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and just about the hour that I was nodding off each night along with the largest portion of the WSL's viewing audience. Australia, by the way, is the second largest, and they're only six to eight hours ahead of JBase, so viewing would start at a much more favorable hour in Australia, Asia, and certainly in the European markets. But this all takes us back to this issue of functionality. I awoke after day one of the event completing, scrolled through some of the highlights on Instagram, and then pulled out my computer to watch the heat analyzer. Much to my chagrin, the heat analyzer was gone. The only ways to watch this event would be live, through a full video recap of a heat in its entirety, 30 minutes, or a condensed seven to 10 minute recap video. So I didn't watch any of the heats, not in their entirety, not in their recaps, I watched individual waves surfed via Instagram, not on Facebook, and nothing of that first day was memorable. And in fact, nothing was nearly as interesting as watching the public revolt. Every single post about the J-Bay event, regardless of where or who posted it, was met with overwhelmingly negative sentiment like this comment from at Randroid one who said, quote, WSL, it's all about money. For the first time in a long time, I've missed an event. I can only watch with my cell phone and I will not open a Facebook account just to satisfy your financial interests. Funny thing, after two days of trying to watch, I actually started losing interest in watching altogether. Congratulations, end quote. Or this one that a listener in the podcast uh, wrote and tagged me in, quote, Absolutely riveting quarterfinal heat. I mean that ironically, as I've only seen four frames of the entire heat. This is the only event that I haven't been able to watch in the last five years. Not due to lack of trying, but due to lack of something Facebook was meaning to bring to the table. Luckily, I wasn't watching it on a plasma TV. Otherwise, I'd have a 120p resolution image of Kanoa Igarashi ghosted onto my screen for the rest of my life. I'm not even angry. I'm just disappointed end quote. And I know I can hear you. Boo hoo, who cares? Lazy Americans whose leisure sport is being beamed from South Africa up to outer space and then back down to their multiple devices within nanoseconds are now complaining because the stream sputtered or it's only available on three convenient formats, not on the fourth, the heat analyzer. Oh, the humanity. Well, I answer you, yes. In fact, that's exactly what's happening, and that's exactly why we're complaining. And in a completely unexpected move, on July 3rd, the WSL actually conceded. They heard our complaints. They acknowledged their unfulfilled promise to the consumer to improve the viewing experience. And in an act of contrition, they restored their heat analyzer and the live stream on worldsurfleague.com without having to log in through Facebook. Now, I'm assuming this violates the original agreement the WSL had with Facebook for exclusive viewing. The originally anticipated $15 million a year for two years was launched six months late, didn't deliver what was promised, and is now a fractured version of the entire premise that the deal was built on. So, is this consumer distress worth anything less than $15 million a year to the WSL? I don't know. Will the WSL even be able to deliver their original core audience that they promised to Facebook? And now that the WSL has retracted exclusivity, will they even be able to execute their original goal of growth beyond the core audience? Seemingly, the only competitive surf fans who didn't care about any of this Facebook kerfuffle were those actually competing in the Corona Open J-Bay and thanks to the restoration of our beloved Heat Analyzer, I was able to watch that drama unfold at my own pace. The three key storylines that we've been following throughout this season provided new and important updates. Kelly returned from injury. The title race shifted dramatically, as did the Rookie of the Year race. There were two additional storylines. Joel Parkinson announced that he'd be retiring at the end of this season after Pipeline. Congrats, Joel. And within a few hours, Kelly out-headlined him by announcing that he, too, would be retiring, but at the end of the 2019 season. Classic Kelly. I'm reserving congratulations for you, by the way, Kelly. Firstly, because you stepped on Joel's moment. And secondly, because we've gone through this before with you. That announcement, whether it proves to be fulfilled or not turned out to be the highlight of Kelly's return. In head-high surf and howling offshore winds, he took third place to Idolo Ferrer and Kanoa Igarashi, barely mustering an 8.73 heat total. His surfboard was tiny, which is just a questionable choice, no matter what he thought the benefit might be if it all panned out. And sure enough, it didn't pan out. The board looked chattery on the water's surface. While Sharp through the turns, he seemed unable to generate adequate drive, and that long drawn out energy that best suits Jay Bay was just vacant from his surfing. Thankfully, he swapped boards for round two, but still to very little thrill, and he simply couldn't outsurf the powerful and in-form two-time winner. Jordy Smith. It was mainly a factor of Jordy weighing 50 pounds more than Kelly, riding significantly more foam, and cutting right through all the bump and chatter that the offshore winds were creating. Jordy and Jay Bay looked gorgeous together. It was a pleasure to watch him surf all through to the semifinals, where he was barely stopped by eventual second place finisher Wade Carmichael. Wade won that heat by less than half a point. And that brings us to the Rookie of the Year race. The Rookie of the Year race has shed Yago Dora and Jesse Mendez at this point. It's now really between 11th place Michael Rodriguez, 10th place Griffin Colapinto, 7th place William Cardoso, and the aforementioned 6th place Wade Carmichael. At the risk of being rude, I'll simply state that I think William's success in Bali will not be sustained, and Michael Rodriguez will probably lose in round two at Chopu and at Pipe, so this is really a Wade and Griffin race. And while Griffin posts more highlights than Wade at any given event, Wade looks fortified for the long race. I'd previously bet that Griffin would do better than Wade in the beach breaks of Europe, but Wade surprised us all when he finaled in Rio. So I suppose anything is possible. And interestingly, they both seem to be liked by just about everybody on tour and the entire viewing public is rooting for both. Griff, because of his boyish naivete and savant level talent, Wade, for his undying work ethic and textbook fundamentals. Right now, I really don't care who wins. I'm psyched to have them both showing not only their potential, but the potential that they'll be around for years to come. Wade Carmichael leapt forward eight spots with this second-place finish. He's now in world title contention at sixth place. Previous number one, Julian Wilson, made the quarterfinals, but really kind of unimpressively, scoring sixes and sevens, looking confident and capable throughout the event, but kind of unimpassioned. He leaves South Africa in second place. Idolo's round two loss probably has nothing to do with his new bleached blonde hair, but I didn't ask any of the judges, it's likely much more a reflection of his lack of experience at J-Bay. It seemed to be an issue of wave selection. He surfed well, and he surfed so well in general that he can often win heats by surfing marginal waves, but that's rarely the case at J-Bay. His selected waves simply didn't offer the opportunity, the pacing, nor the length of ride that heat winners benefit from. This 25th place finish will likely be a throwaway for him at the end of the season, but it still stings, and it interrupts the momentum of his backhand reputation that he established at Bells. He drops one position from third to fourth, but he still presents a big threat for the world title as we move from Chopu and into the beach breaks of Europe. He swapped spots with Gabriel Medina, now third, who surfs so competently and has set such a high standard during past performances, that his current surfing actually translates as subdued. Upon deeper inspection though, it's really flawless. His fundamentals, his pacing, his timing, perhaps he's less radical than he once was, but it's hard to find fault in his surfing at any venue. Yet he has trouble pushing his scores beyond that eight point mark. He'll be a huge threat at Chopu and at Pipe, where we can expect the rest of the top 10, save Julian Wilson, to falter. So that's where Gabriel should thrive. Those exact barreling left-handers will also present the greatest test for current number one, Felipe Toledo. This win over Wade Carmichael is the second consecutive for Felipe at J-Bay, a feat previously only accomplished by Jake Patterson and Jordy Smith. Felipe N. Canoa, who was actually the second best surfer in this event and lost to Felipe in the semi Finals, Felipe and Canoa were the only two surfers throughout the event who consistently incorporated aerials into their repertoire, and not just as a single highlight maneuver, but as maneuvers incorporated into the speed, power, and flow of the ride. Although often, kind of as an exclamation point for the finish, these airs are not at the expense of rail surfing. Both Felipe and Canoa showcased plenty of rail surfing, albeit not with the same power of some of their larger competitors, but they'd offer plenty of rail surfing, and then they'd offer the air on a section where any other turn would have been just repetition of a turn that they had previously completed earlier in the ride. So the airs were not only radical, but they fulfilled the judges' criteria for variety in maneuvers and this radical agility was highlighted most profoundly during Felipe's very close final with Wade Carmichael. The waves were still head high, but less favorable winds created more than just bumps in the lineup. There was these big chops, kind of big lumps of water that provided moguls throughout each wave. Wade posted a very kind of respectable 7.33 and an 8.0 with his predictable yet timeless power surfing combos. Felipe, by contrast, would power belt sections when it was required, but then he'd release the fins and spin through sections that Wade might have just banked off of. Wade did a lengthy floater across a section that I imagine Felipe would have done a 360 air over and across and continued into multiple other turns. On the final turn of Wade's biggest scoring ride, he smashed an oncoming section hard disengaged from the wave's face and then came down and stomped a free fall landing. It was rad to see him disconnect from the wave for a second, but it also highlighted that seeing him land something weightless is a rarity and his fins never actually got free above the lip. There was 20 minutes left in the heat at this point, and Felipe was still in first place without yet even posting what would be his highest scoring wave of the heat in 8.3. He ended up bettering his first place position with that wave with nine minutes left, opening with a fast power gouge, going into two banking floaters, a drawn-out carve, and then a completely controlled yet jazzy fins-free lip-smashing slide. With this win, he switches spots with Julian Wilson from second into first. He'll be wearing the yellow Jeep Leader's jersey in Tahiti and very likely praying for small swell. Sorry, Felipe, but feel free to prove me wrong. I will see you, the listener, next, likely in the comments section on the Facebook stream as we watch Chopu on August 10th. Do me a favor. Don't send me a friend request. I only use Facebook to watch pro surfing and to see my parents' vacation photos. Thanks. See you then.